children back there now, but for those of us whose children are staying in the service, again, they're most welcome um, to be in the service with us, learning the rhythms of worship alongside of us. We have been going for some time now through our confession of faith, just reading it paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter, the London Confession of Faith, 1677 or 1689 as it's commonly known. And we've been looking at chapter 9 as it relates to free will, and this morning we're in paragraph 4. And the statement is this, it says, when God converts sinners, and you know, significant the way that even starts off, right? God is the one that does the converting, right? When God converts sinners and transforms them into the state of grace, He frees them from their natural bondage to sin, and by His grace alone enables them to will and to do freely what is spiritually good. Yet because of their remaining corruption, they do not perfectly nor exclusively will what is good, but also will what is evil. So that is paragraph four as it relates to the free will of man. And we see in that paragraph that our natural position is one of being at odds with God, right? sinfully corrupted um, or corrupted by sin, and that it's God that puts us into a new state, gives us a new nature. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. We began looking at this section of Scripture last week, and uh, for those of you that weren't able to uh, be here with us, I would encourage you to go back and listen to last week's sermon. We're spending two weeks here on this passage where Jesus is teaching us about uh, hell, okay? And so uh, John Mark records this for us. He's inspired by the Spirit. The Spirit of God has preserved this for us. And so I'm going to just reread this passage we began to look at last week. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to do just uh, about five minutes of review for us, and then we're going to get into a couple of more things that we should see in this text of Scripture. So starting with verse 42 of Mark Chapter 9, the word of the Lord says this, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that should never be quenched, where, quote, the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Verse 45, and if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where, quote, he repeats, the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Verse 47, and if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire where, quote, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for an opportunity to read your word. God, we ask that you would help us to 
understand your word, and in that we confess that we are dependent upon you for that very thing. And so, Lord, much more than an intellectual grasping of this passage, help us to grasp it experientially, which means help us to know you better as a result of having spent time here. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just by way of review, uh, we concluded several things last week as we uh, began to contemplate hell together, right? This this very unpopular uh, teaching of Jesus, you know, uh, uh, a teaching here that um, you perhaps have not spent any considerable amount of time thinking through. But the first thing that we concluded from last week is that hell is a place of judgment, it's a, it's a place of judgment. And who is it that is the judge of hell? Right? It's God, right? Not Satan, not demons. It's our sovereign triune God. And, and that's hard to say, and it's, it's hard to describe, but the presence of the unchanging triune God is experienced as wrath, as a horrific torment for those who were not forgiven by God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. For those who have rejected the triune God and have worshipped creation instead of the Creator. So it's important for us not to think and speak of hell as if it's separation from God, as the place that one can go where God is absent. That's not true. Okay, hell is where God judges His enemies. And if you're not in Christ, if you aren't trusting in Jesus, you are, as we saw last week, you're an enemy of God. There's no neutrality, right? There's no neutrality whatsoever. You're not born as a neutral person. You're born as a person with animosity toward your Creator. So we saw that hell is a place of judgment. Secondly, we, we concluded that hell is eternal. It's eternal. I, I gave three reasons why I think that this is the case. First, it seems to be the way that Scriptures speak of hell, particularly the way that Jesus teaches about hell. We see that in our very passage this morning. Secondly, the future physical resurrection from the dead, right? When Jesus comes back as the cosmic judge, it clues us in uh, as it relates to the eternality of hell. Both those who died in Christ and those who perished in their sins will bodily, will physically rise. Their souls will be reunited with their body. In the New Testament, um, it, it contrasts uh, at that, that day of resurrection, it contrasts everlasting life with everlasting torment and everlasting hell, worse than we can ever imagine. And third, we see that there's strong historical uh, Christian consensus on hell being an eternal conscious torment. For instance, this strong consensus is articulated in the Athanasian Creed, which every member at Deer Park Fellowship confesses and that Christians throughout church history has confessed. It says this on this point, at His, speaking of Christ's, at His coming, all people will arise bodily and give an accounting of their own deeds. Right? Those who've done good, right? And in the context of this confession, this is to be taken not as works righteousness, but as, as, as being and living as one in Christ. But those who have done good will enter eternal life, and those who have done evil 
Okay, the book of Revelation talks about being judged by our own biographies if we're not in Christ, right? Being judged by our own works, not being judged by the works of Jesus. But those who have done evil will enter eternal fire. So we see that there's clear creedal language there. We also see our confession, the London Confession of Faith, say this in chapter 32, paragraph 2, the end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of His mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect and of His justice in the eternal damnation of the reprobate. So, so that's a bit of review this morning, but it's important for us to review it and to have um, clear thinking as it relates to this particular doctrine, um, this doctrine of hell. Now, let's continue to press into the text that we've been examining. If you're taking notes, this is what I'd have you jot down first. Hell teaches us about the serious nature of sin. Okay, hell teaches us about the serious nature of sin. Okay, sin, sin is not trivial. Sin is not trivial. It's not something to joke about or even to... to knock off the sharp edges about and just say, you know, we, everybody makes mistakes. Nobody's, nobody's perfect, right? If you find yourself describing yourself in that way, there's a good indicator that you're treating your personal sin lightly, right? I quoted R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul last week, and I'm going to do it again this morning. He, he, I think he coined this, but he called, um, as he's looking at Scripture and the way that sin is talked about, he concluded that sin is cosmic treason against our holy God. We should think of sin as cosmic treason, right? And we should see this serious nature in which we should view our sin clearly in our text this morning. First, we see a sobering warning for those that would cause another image bearer to stumble. Look back at verse 42 with me if you have your Bibles open. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. It'd be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. The the little ones that Jesus talked about as he sat in this house and and taught the apostles, it isn't necessarily literal children, not necessarily, but it's referring to spiritual children, okay? Spiritual infants, young, frail, believers, those who perhaps have this quiet rest and trust in Jesus, this confidence in Jesus, yet those who could be easily persuaded or manipulated or taken advantage of. And if somebody causes those little ones to stumble, that person, those people will face a severe consequence. They'll face an everlasting torment, a type of uh, telos, an, an end that would make one wish that a millstone was tied around his neck and that he was drowned in the sea, which is interesting imagery that Jesus gives, right? This is a hard saying. This is a sharp saying. Um, I was, my kids were uh, trying to get me yesterday to define the word stern. They kept saying, what does the word stern mean? And, and when I see this teaching here of, of Jesus, I think this is a stern saying of Jesus here. One commentator says that this millstone imagery that Jesus uses was doubly dreadful. 
for Jews who, as a rule, feared the sea and regarding, regarded drowning as a horrible form of death. So Jesus, he, he used this fear that was common amongst the Jews right, in order to illustrate something about the nature of hell. He used this imagery, and he, and he said that that fear, okay, that particular way of death is to be preferred over what you will face if you cause one of these little ones to stumble. Now, what does that word stumble mean? What does the word mean? Well, the word that he uses is the word scandalizo, which you hear what when I say that word? Scandal, right? We get our English word scandal there, and and a scandal, it destroys people, doesn't it? A scandal destroys people. You hear about scandals all the time in the news, Right? It's, and it not only destroys the life of the individual that's caught in the scandal, but it destroys the lives, destroys the lives of those that are around them. Right? And, and Jesus uses that word to capture the seriousness of destroying a little one's faith. Okay? Now, what are some ways in which this can happen? Uh, I want to give you just a, a few ways quickly. Okay, first, if we take this in the broader context, right, we, we see that Jesus is in, in the house, which I, I mentioned this last uh, couple of weeks ago, but it was probably in Peter's house uh, where we, we see as it seems like this hub of just getting, getting the guys together and, and, and reconvening and processing things. But, but he's instructing the apostles here in the house still. He, he's taught them about his messianic mission, Right, that he was to suffer, he was to die and resurrect, and it has been clear to us that it, at this stage in their maturity that they just don't get it. Right? They don't get how the messianic mission of Jesus, the way that Jesus has articulated the messianic mission to them, right, his suffering, his death, and then his resurrection, how that way of ministry is going to usher in God's kingdom. How in the world is that what um, how, how can that be what we have been waiting for? Right? That can't be right. However, we know right, that the sufferings, that the, and, and the, the disciples and the apostles eventually know, right? We've looked at the, the trajectory of their ministry, but the sufferings, the death and resurrection of Jesus, it's the gospel that sets a man free, Right? The messianic mission that we see Jesus teach about in the New Testament and then accomplish, conclude in the New Testament, is the way, is, is what sets a man free, right? And one of the ways that a little one can stumble is when supposed strong believers speak to them about this so-called faith in a way that leads them away from the sufficiency of Christ, in a way that leads them away from the sufficiency of the gospel as being everything, Right? Maybe some of you have, have grew up in a church setting where the gospel, when it was preached, was only relevant to the unbeliever, and it was said in the form of a sinner's prayer at the end of the service. Listen, I'm not trying to dismiss or, or, or say you know, that, that this is this horrific thing, but when we begin to reduce the gospel to just a few words of prayer, or when we just tack it on at the end of a sermon, we're cheapening the richness of the gospel, Right? 
Christ is at the center of everything, should be at the center of our Christian walk, should be at the center of the preaching that you hear regularly, should be at the center of the Bible reading that you're doing, should be at the center of, the, uh, of studying the Scriptures, right? The, the descent of Christ, right? His, his taking on of human flesh, truly becoming a man, living in the shadow of our sin for His earthly ministry, and taking the sin to the cross, and experiencing the wrath of God for our sin, and then going into the tomb, and you've heard me say this before, but leaving our sins behind in the empty tomb so that there's no more wrath for us, that's everything. That's everything. And when we begin to cheapen that or reduce that, there's a problem. There's a problem, right? When the Christian faith, for instance, becomes more focused on do this and live, and then there's these obstacles, these burdens that are placed on people in order to be considered a good follower of Jesus, that's sinful. That's sinful. The gospel isn't do this, The gospel isn't do this. The gospel is look at what God in Christ has done for undeserving sinners. The gospel also isn't Jesus saved me, but now I need to keep my salvation. That's not the gospel either. And I keep my salvation, we think. Maybe we don't articulate it this way, but we think this. We I keep my salvation by being a good wife, or I keep my salvation by being a good husband, or by being a good kid, and you fill up what that job description looks like. And listen, we should seek to live before the face of God as men and women and children, right? We should seek to honor the Lord. We should seek to live in a way that's mindful of the law of God. But that's a far cry from thinking that you must maintain your salvation. Your salvation isn't about you or your faithfulness. It's about God and His faithfulness. Your salvation was accomplished by the merits of Jesus alone. And when you internalize that, it frees you. It frees you. It frees you to joyfully grow in obedience to the Lord in all different areas of your life. Right? But the gospel is not Jesus saved you, but now you must keep your salvation. That's actually a turning away from Jesus. That's a different gospel. So one way that little ones stumble is when teachers place burdens on them like this. If you want to be right with God, do this, fill in the blank. Beware of teachers, beware of mentors, beware of people who project a message that strikes at the heart of the sufficiency of Jesus. Beware of messages and people that cloud the richness of the gospel and just keep reducing and reducing it to where it's just relevant for the unbeliever and it's not the very thing that sustains the life of a believer. The old Puritan Matthew Henry, he said this about this passage, "...whoever shall grieve any true Christians, though they be of the weakest, shall oppose their entrance into the ways of God, or discourage and obstruct their progress in those ways, shall either restrain them from doing good or draw them in to commit sin, his punishment will be very great, and the death and ruin of his soul more terrible than such a death and ruin that is of his body would be." Another way that little ones can stumble relates to the sin of partiality. We see in scriptures favoritism, preferring a type of person over another type of person, right? Clicks. We see it as it relates to clicks, right? We see the, the apostles already struggling with the sin of partiality. 
Right? We know this as it related to the Gentiles being included, right? grafted into Israel as a part of God's elect. But we also see this in how the apostles rebuked the man casting out a demon in the name of Jesus because he wasn't one of their followers. He wasn't following them. He wasn't following the apostles. He wasn't on the in crowd. Listen, the, the kingdom of God is more inclusive than we often think that it is. Not inclusive in that God ignores sin, but more inclusive in that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be included. Inclusive in that it's not just those in the Reformed tradition that will inherit eternal life, right? That right? all people who, who, who come on the basis of repentance and faith in Christ alone will inherit eternal life. This means all types of sinners, including those sins which make us in our self-righteousness uncomfortable, right? All types of sinners will be included in the kingdom of God. So we mustn't commit the sin of partiality in the way that we think about others and the way that we speak to others. We must not preach Christ or project a message of the gospel in any sort of discriminatory way. That can be a stumbling block to little ones. We also see that a little one can stumble in a way that their stumble causes them to doubt their faith in the Lord. And I've said across from a lot of people who come from church hurt, right? Some of you have come from church hurt, right? You've been grievously sinned against in the context of a church that you were a part of, right? And, 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 um, and that became a barrier to your growth in Christ, right? I'm sorry that that was your experience and that that happened to you. And, and God certainly will hold those accountable that need to be held accountable, that, that sinned against you in a grievous way or that, that put these stumbling blocks in your path. Or, you know, maybe you've been put in a position where you've had to violate your conscience. You know, maybe, maybe a brother or sister in Christ put you in a position where maybe what, what was happening would have fell under the category of Christian liberty, but for you it fell under a category of, I shouldn't do that. It violates my conscience to do that. And you were around people that kind of pushed you into doing something that violated your conscience. And that was a stumbling block to you, right? There, there was shame and guilt and, and all, all kinds of things connected to that. There, there are different ways. I'm giving us these examples to just demonstrate these different ways that little ones can stumble. It can stumble when the gospel is some reju- reduction. It's, it's, it's reduced and only relevant to the unbeliever. They, they can, they can um, stumble when, when the gospel is no longer sufficient, and it's all about being this good moral person with no sense whatsoever that anything good in us is a gift of the Holy Spirit of God through us, right? We can stumble. Little ones can stumble when they're sinned against in, in the local church context, when sinners are bumping up against sinners and you're sinned against in such a way that it, it can almost devastate or destroy your faith. You can stumble when you're, you're put in a position where you're, you're, you're having to violate your conscience, right? All different ways that little ones can stumble. So may we be Christians, a people committed to nurturing people in the faith, right? Nurturing people in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To not be the type of Christian, to not be that type of Christian, right? According to Jesus here in our passage, to be one that causes little ones to stumble, right? If that's the type of Christian that you are, what Jesus is saying is that you're no Christian at all, 
You're not a Christian at all. That's Jesus' point. To claim to be a Christian, yet your life or your ministry, the relationships with other people that you have, it's characterized by causing them to stumble. You will earn yourself an eternal hell. Now, we also see a warning about walking in open rebellion to the Lord. We see Jesus speak of sins of the hands, sins of the feet, sins of the eye. This speaks on one hand, to the thoroughly corrupted nature of man, right? We're not as sinful as we can be, but we're thoroughly sinful. We're thoroughly corrupted. But it also speaks to the serious nature of repentance, right? And the necessity of repentance. Now, this teaching that we see and the language that we see here about the the sins of the hands and the feet and the eye. It seems to be a common saying or a common teaching of Jesus just based on the different ways that we see it used in the New Testament. It's used beyond Jesus sitting here in Peter's house. And and there's a reason for this repetition. The, The Holy Spirit of God inspiring and preserving this for us is significant. I've sat with many people over the years, over the course of my ministry, who were sorry for sin. There have been tears, there's guilt, there's shame. I've sat across from people who know and agree with the Scriptures about the state of their sin, but most people, and sadly it is most people, in my experience, most people refuse to do the hard work of repenting, right? It stops at a, a confession. Listen, confession and repentance, they're not the same thing. Confession and repentance are not the same thing. Confession is good. Confession is important. But if you're the type of person that just confesses your sin, but you never walk in repentance, then what you're demonstrating is not godly sorrow, but it's worldly sorrow. And worldly sorrow, according to Scripture, leads to an eternal hell. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7 with me, verses 10 and 11. For God, this is the Apostle Paul writing to a worldly church, right? not unlike churches today, uh, Church of Corinth. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world, there is such thing as a sorrow, but it's the sorrow of the world, right? A different type of sorrow than godly sorrow. It produces what? Death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. There's some encouraging news about the church of Corinth. You sorrowed in a godly manner. And here's what it looked like. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. A godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation. And what does repentance look like? There's a diligence, right? There's a desire, an eagerness to clear yourself, to set things right. And some of you men sitting here this morning, you're killing your family. You're killing your family. You're killing your family because you keep sinning against them and confessing it, and you think that that's enough, right? You're killing them because you refuse to repent, Repentance is cutting sin out by the grace of God in your life. It's cutting sin out by the grace of God in your life. Think about an amputee, right? That's the picture that Jesus gives us in this passage. 
Usually the amputee is an amputee because something had to be cut off to thwart something worse, right? An infection spreading or cancer spreading, perhaps. Listen, sin, like a disease, it spreads. It spreads, right? It becomes more pervasive, more numbing, more it hardens you. It, 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 it causes you to be deceived. You don't see things clearly. But it also has a ripple effect on those that love you. Right? It impacts them, the people that you're called by God to love and to serve and to do so in a way that points them to Jesus Christ. And it has to be cut out. John Owen, his work on mortifying killing sin, he says, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Matthew Henry, again, mortify the darling lust. He calls it the darling lust because we often nurture the sins in our lives. He says mortify it, kill it, crucify it, starve it, make no provision for it. Let the idols that have been delectable things be cast away as detestable things. And nobody's off limits from this. None of us, none of us are off limits from this. Men, husbands, fathers, lead your family to Christ by repenting of your sin. Stop floundering. Stop despairing. Be a man, but not in your own strength. Be strong in the strength of God's might. Repent of your sin. Trust in your Savior. Repent of your anger. Repent of sexual sin. Repent of living prayerless lives. Repent of not prioritizing the Lord's Day worship for your family. Repent of the harsh ways you speak to your wives and your children. Repent of your laziness and walk in the purity of King Jesus. Point your family to Jesus so that they can spiritually flourish. Women, wives, mothers, eradicate from your life discontentment, bitterness, envy, gossip, slander, unsubmissiveness. Turn away from the things in your life that feed that and instead turn to Christ. Rest in Christ. Walk in Christ. Students, college students, look to Christ and exhibit self-control, which is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Right? Stop being indoctrinated by a society that em- embraces and celebrates a lack of self-control. Don't be embarrassed about the claims of Christ or the exclusivity of Jesus. Don't be embarrassed about biblical sexual ethics. Don't be embarrassed to trust in the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. Refuse to walk ashamed of the Christian faith despite its most vocal hypocrites. Walk in righteousness. Speak righteously. Be honest in your schoolwork. Don't cheat. Don't lie. Don't submit work that's not your work. These things matter. Fear God. Walk in repentance and faith. Boys and girls, God loves you. And Christ died so that you could be forgiven of your sins, so that you can be eternally happy in God. Look to Jesus. Honor your father and your mother. Treat your brothers and sisters well, the way that you want to be treated. For all of us, we We have to be ruthless with our particular sins. But listen, we do so from a fixed position. 
We do so from a fixed position, and that fixed position is being one positionally right in Jesus Christ. Right? We're called to repentance and faith, and that call can be responded to because God has saved us, and the Holy Spirit of God lives in us. So we rest in the gospel, knowing, again, that it's Christ alone that's made us right. And from that, we labor to increasingly cut the things out of our lives that suppress our joy in Him. Right? We cut the things out of our lives that keep us from loving Him. We cut the things out of our lives that keep us from loving others. Right? This doesn't happen passively. It's strategic warfare, but it's strategic warfare from a position of victory. So mount a war, right? Our Christian walk is, is, is not this. It's not just, man, at the moment of our conversion, we're just skyrocketing off. It's very much more like this, isn't it? Right? Hopefully it's not like this, because when that's the stock market, it, I, I can deduce from that things aren't going well. Um, but it should be like this, right? Moving in the right direction by the grace of God, we should be increasing in our maturity as we rely on the Spirit of God. Second and finally, I want to deal with these last two verses. And if you're taking notes, you can jot this down. Fire and salt are important symbols for the Christian life. Okay, these last two verses in this chapter have been universally dubbed as difficult. J.C. Ryle said in a sermon he preached that this was a deep mystery and that he had yet to understand it, and then he moved on. And so... I was tempted to close us in prayer, uh, but it, it is a, these two verses are difficult. I've found them to be difficult, and I thought to myself, if, you know, men way smarter than me couldn't come to the uh, conclusion about this passage, I'm certainly not going to be able to do so. But I want to give you here what, what I think Mark is getting at, or, or better put, what I think the Spirit is getting at. And I'm going to use this, and this is how I would encourage you to study and read your own Bibles. We take passages of Scripture, sometimes when those passages seem unclear to us, and we take other passages of Scripture that are clear, that utilize similar language, and we, help to, we, we are helped in our interpretations, okay? And so I'm going to use some other passages of Scripture to help bring some clarity to these two particular verses, okay? And that, that's a, um, uh, a good first step when you're reading or when you're studying your Bible, by the way. Um, but note, the, the, the first thing you need to know, Mark is the only gospel writer to include these two v- verses, okay? You're, you're not going to find it. Uh, the only other probably account of this is in Matthew chapter 18, and, and it's not included here. But this was significant, I think, for Mark's audience. And remember, the audience was those Christians in the Roman Empire that were being persecuted by uh, Emperor Nero, okay? He was a wicked, oppressive emperor. So they, they are experiencing uh, lots of different temptations to perhaps compromise, mute the gospel message, uh, abandon, abandon the faith so that they're not persecuted. There's lots of dynamics that were going on. But look back at the passage, verse 49 and 50. Everyone, season, everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another, right? We, we may be familiar with fire language, we're familiar, there's probably some passage of Scripture that came to your mind as it relates to salt and what that represents. Now, I think that Jesus is contrasting hellfire, which takes up the bulk of the teaching in this passage, with a different type of fire, okay? Uh, at the time of Jesus teaching this, the immediate background 
of this teaching would have been the Levitical sacrificial system. Okay, burnt offerings, such as an unblemished bull or bird or ram. And these burnt offerings were consumed by fire and considered to be acceptable to God. Okay, one commentator says it this way, smoke rising from the consuming fire, which is the consuming fire we just read in our call to worship, right? Hebrews 12, right? I'll read that again in a moment. But this consuming fire was a pleasing incense to Yahweh. Salt, too, was not only a sign of the covenant, Numbers 18, 19, but it was required to accompany all Israelite sacrifices, Leviticus 2, 13. And, and let me, in fact, read out of uh, Ezekiel chapter 43, verses 22 to 24. It says this, "'On the second day you shall offer a kid of the goats without blemish for a sin offering.'" And they shall cleanse the altar and they, as they cleansed it with the bull. When you've finished cleansing it, you shall offer a young bull without blemish and a ram from the flock without blemish. When you offer them before the Lord, the priest shall throw salt on them and they will offer them up as burnt offerings to the Lord. Now, first things first. I think that Jesus taught this to his apostles especially to confront their view of his messianic work. Now, I'm not, that doesn't mean that the dots were connected. We saw how dots weren't connected, right, until the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. But burnt offerings are behind the imagery of salt and fire. And I don't think it's a stretch to highlight from this text, just for us this morning, what we know's coming in light of how Jesus described his messianic work, him being this ultimate and final burnt offering. Okay, Paul calls Christ an offering and a sacrifice, Ephesians chapter 5. Be imitators of God as dear children, walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Just as the smoke rising from the burnt offering was a pleasing aroma to the Lord, so is Jesus, this greater and final sacrifice, a sweet-smelling aroma. So there could be this connection here that we see between Christ's first advent ministry and how he's describing it and, 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 and this language that we see related to burnt offering here. Again, I'm not saying that the disciples were grasping that. I don't think they were, um, but I don't think that it's a forced necessarily interpretation of these verses. I also, though, think that Jesus is confronting the nature of followership. Okay, the apostles had one idea of what following Jesus will be, right? The apostles thought that the way up was up, right? That that, that that was the logic. And again, perhaps they were thinking of the life of a disciple in terms of a good reputation and prosperity and control. That's how they thought the kingdom was going to be ushered in. But that isn't what we see characteristic of Jesus' first advent ministry. And because we have the completed canon of Scripture, that isn't what we see characterize the lives and ministries of the disciples, how things play out for them. Instead, we see a life and ministry of descent, a ministry of having one's life poured out as a drink offering, a life of service and sacrifice, of denying oneself, all with an eye toward the exaltation of Jesus. Romans chapter 12, the first two verses, we see some familiar language. I beseech you, brethren, Paul writing the Roman church, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And what does a living sacrifice look like on the street level? It says, don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what's good and acceptable and perfect will of God. 
the apostle in a sermon to the Hebrew Christians, right? We said this in our call to worship, Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us thus offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and with all, for our God is what? Consuming fire. The disciples were going to be put through trials. The disciples were going to face opposition. The disciples were going going to combat their own temptations and sins. The same was true for those who were the initial recipients of Mark's gospel under the reign of Emperor Nero. This temptation there to despair and to give up, right? That had to be a great temptation, right? When Christ died, those three days in the grave had to be agonizing for the disciples that just still weren't getting it, this temptation to give up, right? This temptation to not be living sacrifices, the temptation to not serve God who's a consuming fire in an acceptable way, this temptation to not see the descent of Christ in his death as this sort of burnt offering to the Lord, eternal burnt offering to the Lord, But here the Holy Spirit reminds them, and because these words are preserved, we're too reminded that we're to be living sacrifices. We don't serve our selfish desires. We exist to glorify God. Furthermore, the difficulties in this life, they shouldn't surprise us. It's normative, but we have to keep the faith. We have to fear God who's a consuming fire, and we worship in a way that that a living sacrifice should worship and serve, right? And none of us are off limits from this. That's what's striking to me about that passage there in Mark chapter 9. None of us are off limits in, in the, he says, everyone will be seasoned with fire. Every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. We're not excluded from that. Right? We're not excluded from that. And finally, I think this imagery of salt right, helps to further press in on that particularly the distinctiveness of a Christian, right? A few passages that bring this in to focus, right? You're the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its flavor, how should it be seasoned? It's then good for nothing but to be thrown and trampled underfoot by men, right? Matthew five thirteen, Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be, see- always be with grace, seasoned with what? Salt, that you may know how you ought to answer one another. Right? Christians, by the grace of God, in light of who Jesus is for them, right? should have a distinct flavor, all right, we are to, as a people positionally right before the Lord, live in such a way that the Holy Spirit uses our lives, uses our ministry to preserve, as, as salt is a preservative, His people. Right? Our character should have a distinctiveness to it, a God-centeredness to it. Our speech should be seasoned with salt. It should speak of how God preserves His people through the person and work of Jesus alone, who is the final burnt offering. So, so fire and salt are important symbols. I, I think it speaks to how Jesus is a sufficient sacrifice. I think it speaks to the nature of us following him as living sacrifices and the way in which he uses Christians as the salt of the earth in preaching a message of preservation in Christ alone in an otherwise hell-bound world. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, thank you for time in your word. Lord, we thank you that Christ has done everything sufficient, needed for our salvation, God. Help us to have a renewed gratefulness for him. And Lord, we love you and we give you all praise and glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.